John chapter 13. You know, I would have loved to have been in this setting. I think about moments in biblical history I would have loved to have uh, you know, attended. I would love to have been there for a certain moment in biblical history. And I think about that in relation to the different times we see Jesus teaching throughout the, the Gospels. One of the, the sermons I would have loved to have heard, I would love to have heard Jesus in person deliver the Sermon on the Mount. You know, Matthew chapter 5 through 7, so many wonderful passages in there about prayer and fasting and asking and receiving and, and the Beatitudes. And I would love to have been there to hear the Beatitudes. I would uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, I would have loved to have been there on the road to Emmaus after Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He appeared to two of his disciples. They're on a seven-mile walk from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and they don't understand yet about the the full meaning and implications of the death and the burial and resurrection of Christ. They they weren't even really sure that Jesus was alive, and, and they didn't know it was Jesus walking with them. He veiled himself to them for a time, and he began to show them, the Bible says, how the Old Testament concerned him, how all the Old Testament pointed to, to him, to Jesus Christ. I would love to have heard that Old Testament Bible study, wouldn't you? As Jesus just walked through the Old Testament and showed how it all pointed to him, I, I would have loved to have been there for that. But I really think out of, out of the different teaching moments in the ministry of Jesus, I think the moment I would love to have attended the most is that night in the upper room. Because it was an intimate setting, just he and his disciples. It was charged with emotion as they know something's about to happen. Jesus understands what he's about to face. And, and he's preparing them in these upper room teachings. He's preparing them to live life without him being physically with them. Because Jesus was about to die on the cross and then he was going to be raised from the dead, right? And he's going to spend about 40 days on the earth appearing to about 500 of his followers. But after that time, he was going to ascend back to the Father to sit at the right hand of God. So at that moment, he would no longer physically be with his disciples. And he's teaching them some important truths to help them to carry on when he's no longer physically there. So This applies to us in a mighty way because we experience the unfailing presence of Jesus, but he's not physically here. He's not physically with us. And so we've got to learn to walk by faith the same way the disciples did and understand what it means to follow Christ when you don't see him physically with you. And so some very important lessons from the upper room. So look there with me in John chapter 13. We're going to set the context here. John chapter 13. By the way, I'm, I'm just not going to get in a hurry. All right, we're going, to go, we're going to go just slow through this. I'm going to take my time. I'm not in a hurry. Are you in a hurry? I mean, if it takes us a year, then it just takes us a year. But we're, going to just, we're just going to work our way. It probably won't take us that long. We're going to work our way uh, through it and uh, take our time and just dig, dig, dig because there's so much here. But look what it says there in John 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, so that's the context here. It's the night, it says, uh, before the Passover, the feast of the Passover, and it's during the supper. 
It says, When the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God, was going back to God, rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. I'll show you in a minute why I believe he rose at this moment from the supper. But he's about to give them their first lesson. And this is an object lesson. He's going to show them some actions that would teach them some spiritual truths. And he was going to kind of debrief with them about the meaning behind his actions. And so this begins his teaching in the upper room. And the upper room teachings encapsulate John 13, 14, 15, 16. And, and 17, he prayed, high priestly prayer. Uh, probably they were in transit by this time, but we'll talk some more about that. But look what, in your notes there, the different topics that are covered in these lessons from the upper room. Serving others. We're going to talk about that tonight. He taught about loving others. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Interesting, he said new commandment. Why is it new? He told us to love each other in the Old Testament too, but we'll get to that, all right? I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, third, we're going to talk about heaven. You remember in John 14, Jesus said, Let not your heart be, be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. The old King James says, are many mansions. If I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself. So he's talking there about heaven, about him going to heaven, him coming back to heaven, what he's going to do in heaven before he comes back and gets us. Interesting stuff. We're going to talk about prayer, John 14. Jesus has a lot to say about prayer in these upper room lessons. So he's going to talk about prayer, John 14. We're going to talk about the Holy Spirit. There's a great amount of material on the Holy Spirit in John 14, specifically in John 16. So we're going to kind of put all that together and talk a lot about the Holy Spirit. I believe that we don't talk enough about the Holy Spirit in our churches uh, because we simply cannot live a vibrant Christian life apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you're saved, He's in you. What does that mean? And we'll get to that. So we'll talk about the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about peace. Jesus said, my peace I leave with you. What does that mean? He knew his followers were going to encounter great difficulty and trial, and yet he wanted them to have peace. We'll talk about peace. We'll talk about abiding in Christ. We're going to spend a lot of time in John chapter 15. I can't wait to get to that passage and talk about what it means to stay connected to Christ. You know, uh, he's the vine, we're the branches. What does that mean? We're going to talk a lot about John chapter 15. I believe John chapter 15, is one of the key passages of the Christian life. I believe there's so much there to just guide your walk with Christ. And we'll get to that. Again, I don't want to get ahead of myself, all right? We're going to talk about friendship with Christ later on in John chapter 15. What does it mean when Jesus says, I call you my friends? What an amazing thing. We're going to talk about persecution, where John, uh, Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you as well. We're going to talk about joy in John Chapter 16, we're going to talk about victory. Jesus said, I've overcome the world. What does that mean? So we're going to, we're going to just kind of walk our way through these chapters, these, these lessons in the upper room. But we're going to start tonight by talking about serving others, learning this lesson from Jesus for his disciples and for us as well, what it means, what it looks like to truly be a servant, to truly serve other people. And we saw here in the passage that we read that this takes place during supper. Now, Matthew and Mark and Luke record 
that on the night when Jesus was betrayed, the night before he was crucified, that Jesus gathered his disciples in an upper room, and all they really say about the upper room is that he instituted the Lord's Supper. Very important. And, and he's, he's instituting this Lord's Supper, talking about the meaning of the Lord's Supper, that you, you, you participate in the Lord's Supper in remembrance of the broken body and shed blood of Christ as a celebration of the new covenant. And it's during this supper, it says there in verse 2, during supper that... Uh, Jesus rises, verse 4. He rose from supper, it says, laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. He poured water into a basin, began to wash the disciples' feet to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So during the supper, as he's teaching about the Lord's Supper in the upper room with his disciples, a very intimate gathering, Jesus Christ takes up a basin and a towel and begins to wash his disciples' feet. So what I want to do is I want to give you two lessons, two lessons that come from this act on the part of Jesus. So it's just really a two-point sermon tonight. So we ought to be done in 15 minutes. All right. I wasn't trying to be funny. I was kidding. I'm kidding. But there's some sub-points. I'll be honest with you. There's some sub-points. But there, there, there are two lessons I want you to get from John chapter 13. First of all, there's a practical lesson in this act. There's a practical lesson in this act. Jesus gets up, takes a basin towel, begins to wash his disciples' feet. Now, here's what's interesting to me about that. Jesus did not have to wash anybody's feet. As a matter of fact, if you look there in your notes, Jesus could have appealed to his present problems. Look what it says there in verse 1. Now before the Feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And so Jesus knows the hour is here. He's getting ready to, to go to the cross. He's getting ready to die for the sins of the world. He's getting ready to to face the the Garden of Gethsemane and the betrayal and the arrest and the beatings and the mockery and the ridicule and carrying his cross until he could carry it no longer and then Simon of Cyrene carrying his cross to the top of Golgotha and being nailed to the cross and hanging there from from 9 in the morning to 3 in the afternoon. He's facing the cross. And he's facing the betrayal of Judas, who had been with him for three years. And he's facing, he had full knowledge, that Peter, one of the leaders of the group, was going to, to deny him. He knew the rest of the disciples were going to scatter. He was going to be abandoned. So Jesus was facing a dark, dark moment in his life. And so Jesus could have said, listen, he could have said, you know what? I've got enough on my plate right now. Let somebody else wash some feet around here. I'm the one that's about to be betrayed. I'm the one that's going to be denied. I'm the one that's going to be abandoned. I'm the one that's going to be crucified. Somebody else can surely get up, take the basin, take the towel, and wash somebody else's feet. I mean, no, none of us would have blamed Jesus if he said, you know what, I've got too much going on right now. I'm facing too many problems to deal with foot washing right now. None of us would have blamed him. But isn't it interesting, in the face of all that he's about to endure, he's the one that gets up and serves others. Now, why is that important? It's important because a lot of times we let our present predicament, our problems keep us from serving others, don't we? I've got too much going on in my life. I've got too many problems. Somebody else can do it. 
right? Somebody else can get around it because I've got the weight of the world on my shoulders. And, and, you know, when things get better, then I'll get serious about serving others and serving Jesus, but it never works out, does it? Because something else always comes around. There, there's always another problem, another trial, another tribulation to face. So listen to me. If we're waiting for life to get easy to start serving, we're going to wait forever. We've got to decide whether life is great or life is difficult, whether life is wonderful or life is hard, I'm going to be a servant. And I'm not going to let my, my present predicament, my difficult circumstances, keep me from serving. Because that's what God has called me to do. But Jesus could have appealed to his present problems. Also, Jesus could have appealed to his past faithfulness. Look what it says in verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of, uh, out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. In other words, you could say in relation to Jesus, mission accomplished. He gathered his disciples He trained them, he taught them, he poured into them, he prepared them, he loved them, he kept them, he was patient with them, he had done exactly what the Father had sent him to do. So Jesus could have said, you know what, I've been faithfully obeying my Father my entire life. These three years, I've given my life to these men. Surely, surely someone else could get up tonight and wash feet. But isn't it interesting that he does not point to his past faithfulness and use that as an excuse not to serve? Now here's why that's interesting. I can't tell you how many times in church life, not, again, not just Longview Point, but I, I, I mean, I, was, I grew up in church. My parents were in church when I was born. They were unchurched and got saved, and so when I was born, I was in church from, from a baby on. I've been around church folks all my life. And listen to me, I've heard people say, it's time for somebody else to do that now. I've done my time, right? I've served, I've, I've done this, I've done that, I've led this, I've led that. But let somebody else, let the young folks do it now. And people say, I've been faithful in the past, so I'm going to stop serving in the present. Now, question, where is that in the Bible? Can somebody show me that chapter and verse? Maybe over in First Opinions, somewhere, right? I mean, it's just not in the Bible, right? And, and, and Jesus could have appealed to his past faithfulness. Listen, I've been faithfully serving my Father, obeying my Father. It's time for somebody else to step up around here. Time for someone else to step up and wash some feet. But he doesn't do that. In light of his past faithfulness, he just stands up, takes the basin towel, and begins to wash his disciples' feet. And so he could have appealed to his present problems or his past faithfulness, or, listen to this, he could have appealed to his preeminent position. Look what the Bible says in verse 3. This is interesting. Jesus, knowing that the Father, watch this, had given all things into his hands. That's a powerful statement, isn't it? Jesus knew the Father had given him all authority, all power. He had exalted him. 
and given him a name which is above every name, Philippians 2 says. And so Jesus could have said, you know what? My Father has given me complete, supreme authority, and I'm going to use my authority to say, somebody else wash feet. Right? I mean, he could have, he could have appealed to his preeminent position. That's all. Look what it says next. Knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God, so he had been sent from God, he had sent from heaven. Hey, listen, I came from heaven on a mission to seek and to save that which was lost. Somebody else washed some feet. And it says, Andy knew he was going back to God. He said, listen, I'm, I'm heading back to heaven. Somebody else washed some feet. I mean, Jesus had all power and all authority given to him by the Father, sent from heaven, going back to the heaven, king of heaven, king of kings, lord of lords, alpha and the omega, right? He could have just said, somebody else wash feet around here. And he would have been well within his rights to command someone else to do it. And yet he does not, he does not appeal to his preeminent position. He simply gets up with a basin and a towel and washes his disciples' feet. A lot of times we can think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. Can I get an amen? And, and we can think that we're above certain tasks and doing certain things and serving in certain ways. But if Jesus did not appeal to his preeminent position, what's our excuse? Compared to Jesus, we have no preeminence, do we? And so don't let your present problems or your past faithfulness or your sense of self-importance keep you from serving. Jesus gives us a practical lesson here. He gets up and he washes feet. Now let me show you three things about his act of washing the disciples' feet. Three things. Actually, four things. I'm going to add a fourth that I, that I missed and didn't put in your notes. But let me give you four things. Jesus' act of washing the disciples' feet, first of all, was marked by humility. Marked by humility. Look what it says in verse 4. It says, He rose from supper... He laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin, began to wash the disciples' what? Their what? Their feet. And to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now you need to understand culture here, alright? This is first century. It's before every road was paved. And, you know, people had, you know... New Balance sneakers and, you know, Rockport shoes. And th- this is a day of mostly dusty walking paths. And, and people wore sandals for the most part. Some sort of, 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 of footwear that was not, did not cover the entire foot like our footwear does today. And people, for the most part, walked everywhere that they went. And so people's feet got dirty. They just got dirty. Years ago, I went to uh, Myanmar on a mission trip, and we were in Yangon, which is the, the capital of Myanmar. It used to be called Rangoon, but they changed the name to Yangon. And we decided to go to a, a 
Buddhist place of worship called the Shwedagon Pagoda. And the reason we decided to go is because it's so well known. It's, it's a, a tourist destination that people that, the, the, tour, the tourists that Myanmar has, would go to the Shwedagon Pagoda. And it's a major place of worship for the people of, of Myanmar or Burma. And so it's this massive pagoda in the, in the middle of the city. And you get there and you start going up steps. And there are actually some escalators. You start going up some escalators. And, and we got to a certain point and they said, Take off your shoes. Now, little background on me. I don't like to be barefoot unless I'm on the beach. Beach equals barefoot. I'm fine with that. But even around my own house, I wear flip-flops. I just don't like, I just don't walk around barefoot. They take off your shoes. I said, okay, okay, no big deal. I'll take off my shoes. And I took off my shoes and set them over to the side. I kept walking. And someone stopped me and said, socks too. I said, oh, no. So I took off my socks. Now, you got to realize thousands of people a day are going through this Shwedagon pagoda. And so we walked around, you know, barefoot through this, this. And it was so sad because you get to the top of the stairs and you look over to the right and there's a little area where people are actually making the statues, the, the statues of Buddha. They're making them with their hands, I mean, chipping away. And then they finish them and bring them out to the temple and set them down and people begin to worship that statue. It's just, it's just so sad to see how they are so deceived and, and missing the one true God but we're walking around this pagoda and we're praying for folks that are lost and deceived. And, and we spend probably, I don't know, we're probably there 45 minutes, an hour, something like that. And, and we, we leave and I stopped and I looked at the bottom of my feet and they were just black. I mean, just black. And I got back to the hotel and scrubbing my feet, you know. And I'll never forget that. But, but that's closer, that, that experience is closer to what the disciples in the first century experienced. I mean, that's just the reality, that your feet got dirty, they got, they got dusty. And so there was a need when you gathered for a meal that someone would, would, wash, would wash feet because they were so filthy. And so this was a very humble task, that Jesus would take a basin and a towel. This is the creator of the universe, the Son of God, the e- eternally existent Christ, and he bows down it begins to wash those dirty feet, a task marked by humility. Now, here's what's so ironic about that. His disciples in these moments were arguing about their place in the kingdom. As a matter of fact, turn over to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. I want to show you this connection. Luke 22, verse 24. This is after the, the, Jesus had instituted the Lord's Supper, starting there in verse 14 and 15. But look what happens sometime during the supper, sometime during the upper room. Look what happens in verse 24. A dispute also arose among them, the disciples, as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater? One who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table, but I am among you as the one who serves? Now, I can't prove this, but I think at this moment is when Jesus got up and washed feet. Because look back with me in John 13. Look what it says. John 13. I don't know if you missed this when I was reading it. It says in verse 4, 
he rose from supper. So some sort of supper was already happening. I believe in response, I can't prove it, the exact chronology of it all, but at some point in that evening, the disciples were talking about how, who could be considered the greatest. And Jesus gave them this object lesson of washing feet. He said, do you want to be great in God's eyes? He, listen, he doesn't condemn their desire to be great. But he's saying, here's how you can be great in God's eyes. You serve. You serve others. That's what impresses God. That's what gets God's attention. Serve others. So I believe the disciples are somehow having this conversation about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. And at some point close to that moment, Jesus gets up and begins to wash feet. Can you imagine the disciples saying, "Uh uh-oh, we blew that. Can you imagine how humbling it was for them to see their teacher and master and Lord washing their dirty feet? And so this act was marked by humility. And, and that's the thing about service, isn't it? When you serve other folks, it takes a humbling of yourself, doesn't it? Secondly, his act of washing the disciples' feet was meant for all. Look what it says in verse 12 of John 13. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? So it says there, when he had washed their feet. Now, guess who's still there at this moment? All 12 of his disciples are there, including Judas. You know who got his feet washed that night? Judas did. And the Bible's clear. Jesus had full knowledge that Judas was going to be the one who betrayed him. And yet, this moment in history, can you imagine the emotion of it all? Jesus kneels down with a basin and a towel and washes the the feet of Judas. It was service meant for all. Here's why that's important. Sometimes God is going to call us to serve folks that will not reciprocate. Do you hear what I just said? They will not reciprocate. But we're to serve them anyway. As, a, as an example of the love of Christ. To help others and to serve others and to make a difference in other people's lives. But don't, don't, don't make the mistake of thinking, well, I'll serve when you know, it makes me feel good. Or I get a pat on the back. Or the person says, thank you. No. Jesus washed Judas's feet. That is highly significant. He knew he was about to be betrayed. But we are called, just like Jesus, to serve, even if we're not sure our service and our love and our act will be reciprocated by others. I've been, you know, I've been a pastor now since I was 21. What's that? 16 years? 17 years. 38. 17 years. And, and, you know, through the years, you'll have someone that you invest in as a pastor. I mean, you spend time with them, and uh, I mean, a lot of time, and, and you try to help them, and you you know, you love on them, and and then for just an inexplicable reason, they're just they're gone. I mean, they're they're gone. And and I remember that happened to me one time when I was younger, and I invested a lot of time in this person, and the person just bolted, and I heard they were at another church, and didn't come talk to me, and and I I, I didn't know what was going on. 
And I remember just as a young pastor, it just really kind of threw me for a loop. And, and I had to kind of had this, this, I'll be honest, this sinful attitude. After all I did for them, after all I did for them, right? That is totally contrary to what Jesus displays in this passage, isn't it? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether they reciprocate or not. I'm called to serve, right? And it's the same for you. Doesn't matter if they receive. You're called to serve, to to model the the Christ-like heart of Christ, of Jesus. And so his act of washing disciples' feet was marked by humility, and it was meant for all, not just people that would pat him on the back. Third, his act of washing the disciples' feet was a model for us to follow. Again, there's a practical lesson here, and Jesus is going to drive it home. Look what it says in verse twelve. After he gets through, you can imagine just silence in the room. Can you imagine? These disciples have been bickering about who's the greatest in the kingdom, and Jesus gets down and washes these dirty feet. Can you imagine just everybody's just sitting there just breathless probably? And in verse 12 it says, When he'd washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? In other words, do you get the point? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Why? Because verse 16, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And so Jesus here says, listen, this act of foot washing was meant to be an example for you to follow. Now, just kind of a quick side note here. I don't want to get too far off on this, but there are some Christian groups out there, some denominations even, that teach that foot, wash, foot washing should be a third ordinance. You ever heard that? That you ought to do the Lord's Supper, baptize, and wash feet regularly as an ordinance of the church. How many of you have heard that teaching before? Okay, I don't believe that's what Jesus is saying here. A couple of reasons. First of all, because you don't see it mentioned in any other part of the New Testament. Paul never says to the church in Corinth, hey, make sure you wash each other's feet too. Okay, doesn't mention that as an ordinance in the local church. Uh, I believe the act was symbolic of any kind of service to others. And when Jesus says, I've set an example for you to follow, what he's saying is, learn from my example of humble service. And I expect you to humbly serve others just like I did. And so I don't believe he's instituting here a third ordinance. I think the, the, the foot washing is an object lesson. It's an illustration of what humble service looks like. Now, is there anything wrong, by the way, with having a, a foot washing ceremony? I don't believe that there is. I've been in certain settings, you know, conferences and training times and things like that, where there's a, a foot washing ceremony. It can be very powerful. It can be very poignant. Uh, if it's done well, done right. So I'm not, I'm not opposed to any kind of foot-washing ceremonies, but I don't think it's an ordinance of the church. I don't think we have to do it to be a faithful local church. Um, and, and again, if I think if all you get out of this is you need to wash feet, you're, you're missing the point. You need to humbly serve like Jesus displayed here in this passage. And so this is definitely a model for us to follow. So a couple questions for you, okay? These are hard-hitting questions. They're simple, but they're really poignant. So I want you to really think through your answer to these questions. Number one, is Jesus truly your teacher and Lord? Because he says there in verse 13, 
You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. And so the point is clear. If I am your teacher, then learn the lesson I'm teaching. If I am your Lord, then do what I'm telling you to do. And so a first question that we have to answer is this. Is Jesus really the one that we want to learn from? Is he really the one that calls the shot over our lives? Is Jesus really your teacher and your Lord? Here's the second question. If that's the case, if he's your teacher and Lord, how can you... This this is going to take you some time to unpack over the next week or so. I want you to pray through this. But here's a question. How can you practically be a foot washer in your family, in your church, and in other avenues of life? How can you humbly serve others in your family, in your church, and in other avenues of life? How can you do that? So I want you just to kind of brainstorm. Think about some some practical ways that you can wash other people's feet. Maybe not physically, maybe physically, maybe somebody needs some foot washing around here, but, but how can you humbly serve someone else? All right, How can you do that? What's something you can do practically to help somebody else? And it would be interesting to maybe to see the things the Holy Spirit brings to your mind and your heart. So this act of washing the disciples' feet was marked by humility, meant for all, a model for us to follow. And one other thing, write this down. It's not in your notes, I apologize. But it's motivated by love. This act of washing the disciples' feet was motivated by love. Look what it says back in chapter 13, verse 1. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So reiterated here, Jesus loved his disciples. And ultimately, this act of foot washing, this act of humble service, was driven, compelled, motivated by his love for them. And that's important, isn't it? Because if we really love somebody then we will be compelled to serve them. Love is the motivator, I believe, for for a foot-washing spirit, for a foot-washing heart. And so his act of washing the disciples' feet was motivated by his love. So there's a a practical lesson in this act for us to learn, all right? How can we be foot-washers in our family, in our church, workplace, other avenues of life? All right? Practical lesson. Here's the second thing I want you to see. Second point. And see, that first point only took, you know, 35 minutes. So this one will go quicker. There's a symbolic lesson in this act. A symbolic lesson in this act. There's more going on here as we kind of continue to dig into this passage. I want you to see the symbolic lesson because it is so very important. Look what it says down in... Verse 6. He's got the basin and the towel. And it says, He came to Simon Peter said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? In other words, Peter here is playing the, the, the humility card. Hey, hey you're my master. You're my, you don't need to be washing my feet. You don't need to wash my feet. You're, you're my master. I should be washing your feet. So you don't wash my feet. Jesus answered him. By the way, have you ever had a hard time accepting someone else's generosity or service to you? I have. Someone wants to really serve you or help you or do something, and it's hard sometimes to accept that. And Peter said, no, no, I'm not accepting this. Jesus answered him, 
what am I doing, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. You're going to, one day you're going to get the spiritual lesson behind this act. And he says, verse 8, Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. I won't allow my Lord to wash my feet is what he's saying. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, be careful, Peter, if I do not wash you, he says, you have no share with me. In other words, you need washing. We'll talk about that in a moment. Verse 9, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only. Okay, if I need to be washed, then don't just wash my feet. Wash also my hands and my head. Give me the full deal, right? Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. So as clear as this conversation unfolds, that Jesus is talking about a washing that's deeper than just washing skin, washing feet or hands or the head. Jesus is talking about a spiritual washing here. And so several principles emerge from this brief conversation with Peter, and it's thrilling to see. First of all, we are reminded in this conversation of the realities of justification. The realities of justification. He says there in verse, uh, verse 10, Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. So Jesus here saying, listen, I'm not talking about physical washing, I'm talking about spiritual washing, and Peter, you need to understand, you are clean. He's speaking here of Peter's salvation. Peter had placed his faith in Christ, Peter had been justified by God, Peter was born again. And so from God's perspective, Peter was clean from his sin, because Jesus was going to go to the cross, shed his blood, and his shed blood washes away our sins, right? And so he said, Peter, you're clean. You're clean, which reminds us of this. When you are saved, all of your sins are washed away, and you are declared righteous by God. That's what it means to be justified. I was saved when I was nine years of age. You've heard me tell the story many times when my pastor led me to the Lord. And when I believed in my heart that Jesus died for my sins and rose from the dead, and I called on his name, just like the Bible says, at that moment, because of the shed blood of Christ, My sins were completely forgiven, completely washed away, and God declared over my life, Wade is not guilty. Remarkable, right? Because I am guilty. I've broken God's commandments. I've, I've sinned against a holy God. But Jesus took my punishment for me as a gift of grace. So God could say, not because Wade's good, but because my son died for him, I can declare over Wade's life, Wade is not guilty. I see him as completely clean. Romans 8 says, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that good news? So he's saying, Peter, you're clean. You're clean. I've washed you. I've washed you. And so this reminds us of the realities of justification. But what does he mean? Well, if you look at the notes, this is a gift from God made possible by the death of Christ for our sins. Justification is not something we earn. It's a gift we receive. And the gift was purchased by the death of Jesus on the cross who shed his blood for our sins, died to take our punishment. Now, what does Jesus mean when he says in this passage, verse uh, verse 10, he says, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. 
and you are clean, but not every one of you. What does Jesus mean when he says he doesn't need to wash except for his feet? He's clean except for his feet. Jesus here is using this this foot washing as a metaphor for Christians that are justified who still struggle with sin in this life. Because I was saved when I was nine years of age. I was completely justified, declared righteous by God. But I got some news for you. I've sinned since then. Anybody else sinned since their salvation experience? Yeah, I've sinned. And so what do we do with that? We're justified. Our sins are washed away. And yet we stumble and fall on this side of heaven. Now there's coming a time... When we'll see Jesus, we'll be like Jesus. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, we'll be free from the very presence of sin and Satan and the ungodly. So in heaven, there'll be no more sin. Pray, I can't wait for that, right? But in this life, we stumble and we fall. So we're completely clean, but in a spiritual way of speaking, our feet get dirty, don't they? We still stumble and fall. So there is a a cleansing needed for our feet. And so, listen to this. Even though we are justified in Christ, we are still works in progress. There are those times, still times, when we stumble and fall. Now, I want you to hear me carefully. This is such an important distinction in the Christian life. If you don't get this, you'll live your life confused and defeated. You ready? Everybody listen to me. If you are a believer in Christ... Nothing can separate you from the love of God, the Father, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You are eternally secure in Christ. John 10 says we are in His hand. Nothing can snatch us from His hand. Amen? You are eternally secure. If you're truly saved, you're His. You'll always be His. In other words, you will never lose your relationship with God. Once you enter into a relationship with God, you're adopted whereby now you can call him Father. And once you step into that relationship with God through Jesus Christ, you will never, ever, ever lose that relationship. You will not lose your salvation if you're truly converted. Amen? But, as Christians who have this unbreakable, unshakable relationship with God, when we sin, it doesn't affect our relationship with God, it affects our fellowship with God, our closeness to God. Just like if I uh, walked in the room with my father and I said something disrespectful to him, he'd still be my father, right? But there'd be a, a, a distancing in the fellowship, the closeness, the intimacy I have with my father until I said I'm sorry. And the, the closeness, the intimacy is restored. And that's what foot washing is all about, spiritually speaking. As a Christian, you're completely justified, you're clean, your relationship will never be broken, but sometimes you stumble and fall and it affects your closeness, your intimacy with God. When that happens, you go to God, confess your sin, repent, and it's as if your feet are getting washed. And you have that restored closeness with the Lord. And so... There is a continuous need, until we're free from sin in heaven, there is a continuous need in the Christian life for confession and repentance. A continuous need in the Christian life for confession and repentance. Confession means 
you admit to God what you've done is wrong. Repentance is you say, God, I want to turn and go a different direction. I don't want to do that anymore. I want you to set me free and give me victory in that area of my life. 1 John 1, 9 is a verse that is clearly being written to believers. That's my view. And he says in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He'll wash our feet if we just confess our sins. Now, just kind of a quick word. That word confess in 1 John 1, 9, in the Greek language is the word homo legeo. It's a compound word. Homo means the same. Legeo means to speak. And so to confess your sins means to, to say the same thing about your sins that God does. In other words, no excuses, no explanations. It's just, God, I blew it. I see my sin the same way you see my sin. It's wrong. I shouldn't have done it. I don't want to do it anymore. So I confess it, and I give it to you, ask you to cleanse me, and help me to go in a new direction. That's important, the repentance part of it. Because a lot of times, if we're not careful, we can find ourselves confessing the same sin over and over and over again. How many of you have ever found yourself confessing the same sin over and over and over again? How many of you, let's just be honest, since we're being honest tonight. How many of you have ever found yourself confessing a sin, and in that moment you know you're going to do it again? I have. I'm thinking, okay, I'm confessing, but I know I'll get back around to this soon. Right? Because there's a stronghold in our life. So it's, it's confession and repentance. Proverbs 28, 13 says, confess and forsake your sins. That's what it says. Confess and forsake. Both of those are important. And so if you are a child of God, you're clean. You're justified. Your sins have been washed away. You have a relationship with God the Father that will never be broken. But sometimes you can stumble and fall. Your feet get dirty, right? And you need God to wash your feet. You need to confess your sins to restore not your relationship, but to restore your closeness, your intimacy with God. So, if you're a Christian, your sins are completely forgiven, but you still need to have your feet washed regularly. You have your feet washed regularly. Here's what I believe. I believe that, that if we have a lot of unconfessed sin in our life, we, we, that we never deal with, it just, it just begins to build up and it blocks off the, the work that God wants to do in our life. You know, Jesus compared the work of the Holy Spirit to rivers of living water. Remember those passages in, I think it's John 7, that, that living, the Holy Spirit will be like live, rivers of living water flowing through our life. I love that metaphor, just overflowing from us. You know what unconfessed sin is? Unconfessed sin is like putting rocks in a stream. If you put enough rocks in a stream, it will dam up the water, right? And if we don't deal with our sin on a regular basis, it'll dam up, I believe, the work of the Holy Spirit in us. That, that, that He's not flowing through us with power. Because there's so much junk in our life that needs to be dealt with. And listen to me. You can have sin in your life you haven't dealt with and no one else knows it. You have it tucked away in your heart. But you know who does know it? God knows it. How many of you ever had someone coming over to visit and they, you know, they're coming over quick and maybe they were unexpected but you know they're going to be there in a second and so you pick up everything and you throw it in a closet, right? And the folks come in and your house looks clean, it looks wonderful, but you know there's a closet that's a mess. 
Listen to me. You can have everyone else fooled. But God knows that there's a place in your heart full of a bunch of stuff that needs to be dealt with and needs to be confessed and forsaken. And I believe that if, if we will be faithful to regularly confess our sins, get them out of our life, then those, that, that Holy, the Holy Spirit, the, the rivers of living water will flow with power through us anew and afresh. And we'll start to see the touch of the supernatural on our life if we'll let the Spirit have His way. Amen? And so, we're going to get our feet dirty as, as believers in this old world, so we're going to need to get our feet washed. And so, I mean, there's so much in this passage. There's, there's the practical, humble service lesson, wash other people's feet, but there's the, the spiritual lesson as well, that even though we're clean, even though we're justified, even though there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, sometimes our feet get dirty, we need to confess our sins, let God wash us clean, and restore that closeness to him.